Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. In this episode, we return to the theme of colonialism as we visit the Belgian Congo. It's a tale of two countries, one a huge territory deep inside the equatorial rainforest, and the other a tiny European nation led by a king with imperial dreams. We're joined by special guest Adam Hochschild, a writer, historian, and the author of King Leopold's Ghost, the story of King Leopold and the Congo. The year is 1960, in the capital city of Leopoldville, later known as Kinshasa. The Palais de la Nation is packed, and there are huge crowds of Congolese people gathering outside. The 30-year-old Belgian king, Badouin, is delivering a speech in French, announcing the independence of the Congo. It's a long-awaited moment, but his words are jarring. He refers to the genius of his grandfather, Leopold II, and to Leopold's civilizing mission, which Belgium has strived to continue over the last 50 years. He also urges the Congolese government not to dismantle the structures that the Belgians have created without having something to replace them. Congolese people in the audience look on, some applauding, others unimpressed. The first president of the Democratic Republic of the Congo speaks, replying politely to King Badouin. Then the Prime Minister, Patrice Lumumba, stands up. Lumumba speaks directly to the people. He stresses that the relationship between the Congo and Belgium is friendly, but, quote, no Congolese will ever forget that independence was won in a struggle, a persevering and inspired struggle carried on from day to day. End quotes. He refers to the abuses and beatings perpetrated by the Belgians. This makes ripples around the world. Not just Belgium, but other European countries see it as a slap in the face. The Congolese people, and those involved in the civil rights movement in America, laud his defiance and hail him as a hero. But Lumumba's days are numbered. And as Cold War paranoia grows, the Congo will again be plunged into chaos. Today, there are two countries referred to as the Congo. The Democratic Republic of the Congo, which we discuss in this episode, and the smaller Republic of the Congo, a former French territory. Both are situated in Central Africa's Congo Basin, where the Congo River, the deepest river in the world, winds its way through dense rainforest. In the mid-19th century, this area is part of a larger kingdom of Bantu people. In 1865, halfway around the world, the young King Leopold II has just taken the Belgian throne, and he has big plans. His tiny country is wedged between two larger powers, France and Germany. But Leopold dreams of making Belgium into a glorious nation too, with colonies of her own, beautiful and calm. 
Yet when the chance arises to claim some more land for Belgium, King Leopold II does something a little unexpected. He keeps it for himself. Our guest Adam Hochschild tells us about the scramble for Africa and Leopold's unusual course of action. Starting around 1870, there began what historians usually talk about as the scramble for Africa, which is the colonization of huge parts of that continent by uh, European countries. And many people don't realize how quickly that happened. In 1870, roughly 80% of Africa south of the Sahara was under indigenous rule of one sort, uh, chiefs, kings, village headmen, whatever. Uh, by 35 years later, almost the entire uh, continent of Africa south of the Sahara, with just a few exceptions, were European colonies or protectorates of one sort or another, or regimes run by white settlers like South Africa. Uh, so it was a process that happened very quickly. And one person who saw this going on was King Leopold II of Belgium. He had uh, taken his country's throne in 1865 at the age of 30. And he was a very ambitious guy who was quite frustrated with being king of such a small country. Moreover, he was frustrated with being uh, a king at a time when it wasn't so much fun to be a monarch in Europe anymore because you had to share power with elected parliaments. So he wanted some part of the world where he could reign supreme and make a lot of money. And he set his sights on the middle of the continent of Africa, the territory that today is the Democratic Republic of Congo, he hired the British explorer, Henry Morton Stanley, the man who had found Livingston, to stake out this vast territory for him. And uh, in 1884 and 1885, uh, Leopold managed to get first the United States and then all the major nations of Europe to recognize this huge territory, more than 70 times the size of Belgium, as belonging to him personally. It was not a Belgian colony at that time because Belgium was a small country with uh, no navy and no merchant marine, and the government considered it would be extravagant for them to have a colony. But uh, for Leopold, that was no problem. He made this place his personal possession, and for 23 years, it was the world's only privately owned colony. For more than 20 years, King Leopold II retains personal control of the Congo, and his soldiers, the mercenary band called Force Publique, control the local population. Leopold manages to amass a fortune, but it comes at a cost. Millions of Congolese people die. A European missionary who witnesses conditions firsthand writes a distraught letter to the king saying, I have just returned from a journey inland to the village of Insongo Mboyo. The abject misery and utter abandon is positively indescribable. I was so moved, Your Excellency, by the people's stories that I took the liberty of promising them that in future you will only kill them for crimes they commit. 
Adam Hochschild discusses King Leopold and the rubber trade and how he initially gained and then lost support. Leopold was a very, had a very shrewd sense of public relations. And one of the reasons that he got everybody to so quickly recognize his hold over this territory was that he portrayed himself as a philanthropist. He said, uh, uh, I want this uh, territory as my colony in order to bring civilization and Christianity to these poor benighted Africans. And my intentions are only philanthropic. And at the start, uh, people believed him. And of course, people always like to believe when they're doing something that involves conquest, that it's really for the good of the people being conquered. So, you know, the other European colonies that were countries that were acquiring colonies in Africa were also uh, talking about themselves in philanthropic and altruistic terms as well. So Leopold sort of mastered that rhetoric, managed to convince people that his real purpose was to bring Christianity and literacy and civilization and so forth to Africa. So people went along with it. And uh, as I said, the other countries of the world, starting with the United States, recognized uh, this territory as belonging to him personally. In Belgium, at least in the uh, first few years of his ownership of the Congo, uh, it was also thought of something that was kind of a feather in Belgium's cap, that the king of this relatively small country had this huge territory in Africa, and it provided a place where Belgians who wanted to get rich quick could go. Uh, and uh, Leopold very quickly, uh, it became clear that what he was really after was trying to make money. Initially, he was in search of ivory, which was a tremendously valuable commodity in those days before they had invented plastic, because ivory you could carve into all different kinds of shape and it remained durable. Uh, statuettes, jewelry, piano keys. Uh, most of the piano keys in the United States were surfaced with Congo ivory. Uh, and then Starting in the early uh, 1890s, there was another even much larger source of wealth that the, the king discovered. They had just invented the inflatable bicycle tire, and this set off a worldwide rubber boom because uh, uh, industries were eager to get this rubber to make bicycle tires. Then the automobile came along and there was a need for automobile tires plus rubber to coat the telegraph and telephone wires that were beginning to encircle the globe. Um, so there was a tremendous rubber boom. Now, the thing about rubber is that if you plant a plantation of rubber trees, it takes about 15 years for them to grow to maturity to the point where you can begin to tap rubber out of the trees. So the people who could really make a killing during the period of this early rubber boom were those who owned territory where rubber grew wild. And nobody had more of that than King Leopold II because rubber grew wild in the great equatorial African rainforest, not in rubber trees, but in rubber vines, which twined around palm trees and other trees up to where they could get some sunlight. 
And if you tap those, you had a ready source uh, of wild rubber. So Leopold began exploiting the territory for that purpose. And he did so in a very brutal way. Uh, tapping wild rubber is difficult to uh, get people to do because these rubber vines were scattered quite widely through the rainforest. So what he did was he sent his private army, 19,000 officers and men, black conscript soldiers under white officers, into village after village, and they would hold the women of the village hostage in order to force the men of each village to go into the rainforest and gather a monthly quota of wild rubber. And as the rubber price kept increasing, that monthly quota kept increasing. So this turned out to be an enormously lucrative source of money for the king. And the best estimates are that during his 23 years of ownership of the Congo, uh, he made a fortune equal to well over a billion dollars in today's American dollars, some of it from ivory, but most of it from rubber. By the time the early 20th century rolls around, news of Leopold's brutal practices is starting to travel back to Europe, and the notion he's motivated by philanthropy is wearing thin. Among his critics is a Polish sailor, Joseph Korzeniowski, also known as Joseph Conrad. Conrad has a stint as acting captain on board a steamer ship owned by a Belgian trading company. He's meant to be working in the area for three years, but he only makes one trip up the Lualaba River before he quits horrified. Conrad's most famous novel, Heart of Darkness, is inspired by his experiences. An international protest movement against Leopold begins to grow, and the solution other countries propose is for Leopold to formally turn his free state over to Belgium. Uh, there was pressure on him to turn this private colony over to Belgium because people believed wrongly, I think, that if it was the colony of a country, just as there were British and French and German and Portuguese colonies in, in Africa, it wouldn't be run in such a brutal way. But in fact, the British and French and German and Portuguese colonies actually used forced labor as well. However, the focus on King Leopold's Congo uh, uh, put a lot of pressure on him and on the Belgian government to get the king to divest himself of this colony, turn it over to Belgium, and then people thought, as I, as I say, wrongly, that the atrocities were going to cease. So in 1908, the Congo Free State became the Belgian colony. The king, however, did not give his colony to Belgium. He sold it to Belgium with a deal that the Belgian government had to pay him on the installment plan over a number of years uh, for this colony. So that's how it became the Belgian colony uh, in 1908. As it happened, Leopold didn't collect all the money because he died the following year in 1909. After the Free State becomes a formal colony, Leopold seems to exhibit some discomfort about what he's done. He has the entire archive of the Congo Free State burned, apparently in a bid to prevent the scale of the atrocities 
becoming public knowledge. It's the start of a new era for the Belgian Congo. In addition to ivory and rubber, it's a territory with a vast amount of mineral resources, from diamonds and gold to manganese, coltan, copper and cobalt, and even uranium. Most of the uranium sourced for the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II is mined in the Congo. For decades, Belgians exploit these many different sources of wealth, and Congo becomes a place where Europeans can go to make their fortunes and lead a good lifestyle. But conditions for Congolese people are still dire, and it takes a long time for them to improve. For the Congolese, during the Leopold period, it was an extremely brutal life because I described, you know, the slave labor system where people were turned into forced laborers to uh, gather wild rubber. Many of them were worked to death. Uh, and then when you have an African village where the women are being held hostage, the men are forced laborers off in the forest, there's nobody to uh, plant and harvest crops, to go hunting, to go fishing, to do all the things for which a community normally feeds itself. And this caused uh, near famine on a large scale. And when you have a lot of people in conditions approaching famine, diseases take a terrible toll that people might have survived otherwise. Furthermore, there were many rebellions against this regime, uh, but the Leopold's army was armed with repeating rifles, machine guns, mobile cannons, steamboats, and the rebels had none of these things. And then additional tens or hundreds of thousands of people fled into the rainforest to try to escape being conscripted as uh, forced laborers, but they went to places where there was no food, no shelter, and they died. So uh, all told, and, and this whole forced labor system also continued into the Belgian period uh, as well. All told, the best estimates are that between 1880, when Leopold first uh, started to get his hands on the territory, and 1920, a dozen years into the Belgian period, uh, the population of the territory shrank, uh, uh, was roughly cut in half, going from somewhere around 20 million people at the beginning of that time to somewhere around 10 million people at the end of that time. We don't have exact figures because there was no, there were no censuses taken until uh, into the 1920s. But it was a huge shrinkage of population, some of it outright deaths, some of it because when you have traumatized slave labor populations, people stop having children. Uh, so this was a really rough time. By the early 1920s, the Belgian colonial authorities began to recognize that if they continued the slave labor system running this so harshly, they would soon have no labor force left. And you can actually find them saying this on paper. So things eased up. Forced labor remained a major part of the economy, but the conditions eased. They began uh, building health clinics uh, and that kind of thing. And so the population stabilized and then started to grow. But throughout colonial Africa, forced labor remained uh, a basis of the economy in most colonies uh, up through World War II. Uh, 
uh, and sometimes a little bit after that as well. But uh, some industries developed. Uh, uh, there was widespread uh, elementary education. Uh, they wanted, because obviously workers are more efficient if they are literate. Uh, there was very little higher education uh, because, you know, you don't want people learning too much or else they're going to want independence and that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, conditions improved somewhat. Uh, the Belgians who went there, and I think there were at the peak somewhere around uh, 50 or 60,000 Belgians. I'm not sure on the exact numbers, but roughly that. Lived quite comfortably. And this was this was true with white settlers throughout colonial Africa, because the cost of African labor was cheap. You know, you could have several servants in your home in a, in a way that you could never afford in Europe. So the Belgians lived comfortably. They lived in, you know, European style houses. Uh, the Africans uh, lived in, in much worse conditions. In the 1950s, post-World War II, independence movements start to grow in Africa. And among the young revolutionaries in the Congo is Patrice Lumumba. Patrice is a member of the Titila ethnic group, and like many young Congolese of his generation, he's multilingual and educated in Belgian missionary schools. Although he's intelligent, he doesn't go to university. As a rule, Congolese people are kept out of most of the professions. They can't train to be lawyers or judges or doctors. Lumumba is an evolu, a Congolese man educated only to the point that he could be useful to Belgian colonists. However, he's also unapologetically anti-colonial. In 1958, he founds the Mouvement National Congolais. He's a passionate and charismatic orator and quickly gathers a large following. In 1960, he becomes the first Prime Minister of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Adam Hochschild tells us now about Africa in the 1950s and 60s and the short reign of Patrice Lumumba. Well, the 1950s were a time throughout colonial Africa where independence movements got going and became uh, much more vocal. Uh, sometimes uh, violently so, the Mau Mau Rebellion in Kenya sometimes peacefully so. Uh, Ghana, I believe, was the first country in Africa to win its independence in 1956 uh, from Great Britain, and many other countries uh, followed. And this desire for independence spread to the Congo as well. And starting in 1959, there were um, big popular demonstrations saying, you know, it's time for us to be independent. Understandably, you know, people want to run their own country and not feel that they and their economy belong to some other country thousands of miles away. Uh, the Belgians finally gave in to this uh, pressure and in 1960 agreed to give independence to the Congo. Uh, King Baudouin of Belgium came there and made a very 
patronizing speech, uh, saying uh, we're carrying on the enlightened work of King Leopold, and thanks to him, and thanks to the administrators who came after after him, you know, you people are finally uh, uh, able to get independence, and you have to show that you're worthy of it. Uh, but what the Belgians hoped was that they could give the country political independence, but still continue to benefit from it economically by owning the industries and continuing to extract the natural resources and profit from them. Uh, however, the, uh, the, the prime minister of the newly independent Congo, coalition government prime minister, who was elected by the first real democratic election that territory had ever had, uh, was a man named Patrice Lumumba, who was an extremely articulate exponent of the idea that Africa had to be economically independent of Europe, as well as politically independent, and that uh, the industries had to be owned by Africans themselves and not by European or American corporations. And this was anathema to the Belgians and to their friends in Washington. Uh, and combination of efforts by the both the Belgian government and the American government uh, forced uh, Patrice Lumumba out of the Congolese government and saw to it that he was assassinated in January of 1961 an event which had immense re repercussions all around the world. People recognized it as a sign that Europe, with American support, intended to keep on maintaining a kind of colonialism, but in a different form. Uh, and Lumumba is very much regarded as a martyr today. Lumumba is arrested tortured and killed only seven months after his famous speech. Now his former army chief of staff, Joseph Mobutu, consolidates his power with American support. The country is renamed Zaire, which is considered to be a more authentic African name. President Mobutu, like Lumumba, is intelligent and educated, but there the similarities end. Mobutu is canny, he's not an idealist, and he's a lot more like Leopold. He uses the country as a source of personal wealth. A cult of personality springs up around him, and it's not long before the press start to refer to him as the Messiah. Thanks to his trademark leopard skin beret, he's also known as the Leopard of Zaire. Well, after Lumumba was killed, came the question of who was going to run this country. There was a lot of fighting among the, the uh, internal squabbling among the Congolese who, who survived him. And then finally, in 1965, uh, Joseph Mobutu, who was the chief of staff of the army, with strong American support, staged a coup and became dictator of the country for the next 32 years. Um, he uh, restyled himself uh, Mobutu Sese Seko. He changed the country's name to Zaire. Uh, but he was, in effect, the dictator. 
The U.S. gave him roughly a billion dollars worth of civilian and military aid over that dictatorship because this was an era, the late 1960s through the uh, mid-1990s, when if you were anti-communist anywhere in the world, the United States would support you. That was really what mattered most to Washington and to, and to its European allies. So Mobutu raked in an enormous amount of support from the United States, uh, ended up exploiting his country even more thoroughly than King Leopold had. He had a longer period of time to do it. He had a more developed economy to exploit. The best estimate is that he stole something on the order of $4 billion uh, worth of wealth uh, from the Congo's government, and he put it into building palatial building or acquiring palatial homes uh, in in Paris on the French Riviera, other places. Uh, built a palace uh, near his native village in, in Congo with an airstrip uh, large enough so the Concorde could land there, the supersonic jet to fly him to Europe or shopping sprees there, uh, a totally ruthless and exploitative dictator. Mobutu retained ties to Europe because that's where he liked to go to spend money uh, and to hire a very expensive chef uh, and do that kind of thing. So uh, there were relatively few Belgians left in the Congo during Mobutu's reign. Uh, most of them had gone back to most of them had gone back to Belgium by that point, but he certainly had ties to European businesses, and uh, you know, uh, European companies knew that if they wanted to invest in the Congo during that period, they had to give a major portion of of the profits to Mobutu or his cronies. So there were those kinds of ties. Mobutu rules Zaire for more than three decades, and during that time he's believed to have embezzled millions of dollars. He has lavish palaces and private farms stocked with sheep flown in from Venezuela. Coincidentally, his first wife, who travels with him to Paris by Concorde to go shopping, is called Marie Antoinette. Thanks to Mobutu, the term kleptocracy or rule by theft, becomes popularised. The beginning of Mobutu's downfall is the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s. By now his citizens are disillusioned and many are living in poverty, and with the collapse of the USSR, the Americans have no reason to keep supporting his regime. In the aftermath of the genocide of Tutsis by Hutus in Rwanda in 1994, Rwandan refugees also flood into the country. This results in further destabilisation of Zaire and eventually the start of the First Congo War. Mobutu flees to Morocco, leaving his glorious palaces to fall into disrepair. The First Congo War is followed by a second war in 1998, and today the country is still rife with conflict. Despite its vast mineral wealth, in 2022 it's among the five poorest countries in the world. 
with a population of more than 100 million, nearly 60 million people live on less than $2.15 US a day. It's only in recent years that Belgium has started to come to terms with its colonial past, and the subject of the Congo is still sore among some Belgians. Adam Hochschild discusses Belgium's difficult legacy. I think only in recent years have most Belgians begun to acknowledge uh, how much their country exploited the Congo when it was first a colony of King Leopold and then of Belgium itself. Um, no European country has come to terms with its colonial heritage very easily. It always has to be pushed. But there's been a lot of uh, uh, revelation of that history. A Belgian author, Ludo de Witt, uh, wrote a book that was published about 20 years ago about Belgian complicity in the death of Lumumba, which had a considerable effect uh, in Belgium. And gradually that country has changed the picture it gives its citizens of what its relationship to Congo was. One interesting example of that is an institution called the Royal Museum for Central Africa, which is on the outskirts of Brussels. It was a museum founded by King Leopold, and it ironically is, I believe, the largest museum concerned specifically with Africa anywhere in the world. But it's nowhere near the continent itself. It's thousands of miles away. And for most of its existence, up until the mid-1990s, which was the first time that I visited it, there was nothing in this museum full of beautiful African art and artifacts uh, that told you anything about the fact that millions of people had died when all of this great, while all this great art was being brought back to Europe. Um, today, uh, at last, uh, starting a few years ago only, uh, the museum has been completely rebuilt and redesigned, and it does portray the, the history of the exploitation of the Congo uh, much more honestly. It's, it's made a, a big step forward that way. Uh, to what extent that has been echoed in Belgian school textbooks, I don't really know. Certainly up until five or 10 years ago, they were still portraying the colonial period in uh, uh, very glorious terms. I suspect that's changed, but it's not something I've kept track of. Today, the palatial gardens of Lycan in Belgium are home to vast greenhouses, all of them full of beautiful plants. King Leopold II commissioned these, and one is dedicated to the Congo. It houses native flowers and trees from a colony which he exploited but never actually visited. History isn't far away in Belgium. Leopold also invested some of the money he gained from the Congo in buildings, infrastructure and parks, ensuring his legacy as Belgium's builder king. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, very few settler families remain, but there are still remnants of Belgian rule, including old administration buildings and colonial bungalows. Most educated Congolese people can speak French, 
and once more it's become a popular spot for Belgian Catholic missionaries who are stepping into the role of educators. Although the country is making progress, the events of the mid-20th century are still raw. In particular, there's enduring bitterness about the death of Patrice Lumumba, who's become a symbol of the brighter future that the Congo might have had. The African proverb, when elephants fight, the grass suffers, perhaps sums up the damage done to the country and to many other less powerful nations which struggled with the aftermath of colonialism and were drawn into the Cold War. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Special thanks to our guest, Adam Hochschild, the author of King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror and heroism in colonial Africa. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Elena McPhee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song. We'll be discussing the colourful life of Ernest Hemingway, the Nobel Prize-winning author with a taste for adventure. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us to share this project with more listeners, so please do share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.